Welcome back to the conversation with Bronte Velez. Bronte is a Black Latinx transdisciplinary artist, designer, trickster, and wake worker. Their eco-social art praxis lives at the intersections of Black feminist placemaking and prophetic community traditions, environmental justice, and death doulaship. The conversation that we had was so special, I didn't dare edit it or cut it down. So I'm airing it in its entirety, and this is part two. I'm very grateful to the way you're sharing your journey and your experience, your your embodied alchemy as a traveler between worlds, you know, as someone who has a deep, um, gifted sensitivity of the fluidity of these exchanges, of these thin places, of the ways in which imagination becomes manifest as ritual can help to alchemize grief, which is a mm-hmm. um, an expression that that you yourself have said. And I mm-hmm. I want to ask you about the inspiration that you received from Pedro Reyes mm-hmm. and what he did in Culiacán and. You know, he collected, and I'm sharing this for our listeners, he collected over 1,500 guns and melted them down into shovels and then used them to plant trees in areas that were really affected by violence there and coined this expression, this movement, balas de pistolas. And I want to ask you about the moments in which that activated, further activated what was already your ministry of ritualizing in, in these spaces of grief and being able to create the safe passage that you're describing and in led to life. So can you share how, how did that movement begin? How did that seed grow into shape? And I'd love to hear from you how we can begin to understand alchemy mm-hmm. as this process of unknowing so that we can make room for what could be mm-hmm. in the ritual of subversive creativity. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that question. <clears throat> I am so grateful to to <laughs> I'm already starting my Spanish accent. I'm, I'm so grateful to Pedro Reyes um, entire body of work. It came across my desk my senior year of undergraduate where I had a job as a copy editor for something called Art Life Laboratory. And I got the chance to be the last reader for Pedro Reyes's retrospective published by them, Antonis Macus, a book on Antonis Macus' life and work, a Colombian mathematician and also would later become the mayor of Bogota and his theater, theatric and ritual and comedic interventions as a mayor and the way that he changed public life through modes of performance and understood the state as a, as a place, all of it as a performance. And so meeting it there. And then there was another book that I'm forgetting. So I guess it didn't influence me that much. <laughs> but I mean, it wasn't good, but those were the three texts the, and the texts I don't remember. So sorry to this man. So sorry to that man. (laughs) Um, So it was just so deep my senior year to be 
have accumulated so much work at that point around literally focusing all of my work toward Black feminist thought and art as social practice, and then to encounter these Latinx artists, which I had been oriented towards Latinx artists, but I hadn't been familiar with Pedro's work until I was reading this book that I needed to read in a weekend and see if there were any errors. Um, and I came across Palas por Pistolas and his work Disarm, where he turns guns into instruments. And it just made me pause so deeply. Like it was just such, it was like, oh yeah, like, wow. <laughs> That is that does something to you to feel something become something else when we've mm -hmm. been so displaced from a relationship with transition of things decaying, of things becoming other things, which is what if we had healthy death cycles that would occur. And I didn't really know why that was so significant to me at that moment in the ways that I do now and that it's literally changed my life and my whole life has been changed by that body of work. But in my senior thesis that I mentioned, I was writing about a glow-in-the-dark bike path that my friend Harry Pickering had sent to me while we were studying in Czech Republic, and the bike path was this glow-in-the-dark bike path designed by this group, Studio Rosengard, that was a monument to Van Gogh, Starry Night, and I loved this humbling of a monument. I loved this glow-in-the-dark bike path. I loved all of the work that they were doing and was really interested in Studio Rosengard's practice. And my senior thesis opened with an essay that was sort of my forward um, about being sent the bike path and then thinking, would my friend Xavier, who had been killed on a bike path in Atlanta, if the bike path had looked like this, would he have been murdered? And would the 14-year-old Black child who killed him, would that have even happened? Would he have even been in a situation where he was being initiated into some other form of belonging, which I, I know that gang violence is? Um, would that have happened in that way? And I, it wasn't really about the bike path necessarily. It wasn't really about like the bike path is the solution, but it was a question around design being when does, when we care about beauty, does that mean we also care about each other? We care about life. We just, we care about what does that bike path say about that town, you know? Um, and it could just be a cool thing. I don't know if that town is okay in the Netherlands, you know? <laughs> I'm not putting all that pressure on the bike path. But what does that instigate around 
how we care about one another. And I thought a lot about this person, Dr. Sean Jinwright, um, reframing PTSD as persistent traumatic stress environments and this baby not being afforded the question of why he, of what happened to him and the ways that white children who cause violence and harm in the U.S. are are afforded a question of their mental, spiritual, emotional well-being, where the status, um, and they're asked about their environment, and that Black children are already adultified and not seen as children and not seen as beings that have been disturbed by white supremacist environments and being surrounded by violence, state violence. Um, So in my essay, I just kind of propose some of these questions. And then I go into a letter from a future self where I am working with this collective called Time Makers Uh, who in climate collapse and in climate catastrophic events, they are there ahead of disaster capitalists, invited by communities to basically hold ceremony and commemorate their dead. I was thinking a lot about post-Hurricane Katrina, the kind of racialized violence that happened to Black people during the hurricane that wasn't happening happening to white people and the police brutality and the harm that comes in the wake of disaster and imagining that. So there was a, in the story, there's a hurricane that hits the sea islands near South Carolina. And we go in collaboration with Pedro Reyes, his shovels and his instruments. And we are planting trees that are urns and a little girl who is planting her mother who's passed in the hurricane is brings me this box of bones and it is a text from a this is all fiction by the way (laughs) but (laughs) she brings me this text um that you're about to read. And it's my preface from my future self who works at this organization that this is the way that we came across this text. And the text is a enslaved woman named Selu from the late 18th century who is writing this ephemeris, which was people would call ephemeris like basically an almanac. And uh, she wrote an ephemeris on a metaphysical spiritual rebellion that they hosted there. That it was something that at that time, the text is basically talking about the recognition that there are so many types of work that happens in a movement ecosystem. There's so much, there were people who resisted through burning down plantations and poisoning enslavers food. There are people who led very physical rebellions. Um, there are people who gathered their people and fled and departed from enslavement. And I was also interested in these fugitive and quiet ways. People who stayed weren't just staying, 
but doing other types of work that couldn't happen at that time, that weren't available at that time. And I was thinking about the Buddhist, the Tibetan Buddhist practice of termas and termas as a prophetic text that teachers know are not, it's not ready for that time because people cannot realize this teaching at this time. So someone is to find it, a tertan will find it later when it's time for it to be implemented. And essentially that she had left this terma that we were then ready to realize. And I think a, a lot about that being <laughs> um, who in that text, because the book actually, I was interested in the book reflecting the text. So it was a plantable book and I held a ritual where folks actually went and offered other texts to it and buried it. We had a whole other like event with the text. And I think actually literally seeding that text, like literally planting it at the Charles River of whose name I don't, whose other names I don't know um, in Waltham. And I, I don't know that the ancestral peoples of where Waltham is. I, I imagine it might be the Massachusetts. Um just to feel that it's literally came true. <laughs> like I went after that, after undergraduate, I went to, I was a part of something called the Spiritual Ecology Fellowship. Um, I proposed several projects during that that would be resource. I, that was right after I graduated from college. Um, another person called Emily who was in the fellowship who, whose proposal was around ceremonial tree planting approached me about collaborating. And at that time, I actually wanted to work on a rap album. And I didn't want to, uh, I was not like really feeling, excuse me, I wanted to work on a rap album. And I wasn't feeling like my, my idea with working with Pedro shovels was actually thinking about the way that church spaces have changed in Atlanta. And congregations have changed from scandal to just people not really feeling it no more to et cetera. But then there's so much land and the ways that there's this story of black people not having land, but then there being these spiritual sites that have land um, and was curious about food security projects and collaborating with my parents to think about the ways that we could transform church space in Atlanta and use the shovels toward that purpose. And uh, yeah, Kyle approached me and, and that kept changing and morphing and not really clear what it was. And I felt this call to reach out to the King Center who I had grown up with about around first hosting the events in Atlanta and the practice of turning guns into shovels felt deeply and into other ritual objects felt deeply Kingian to me. And then they shared that Dr. King's, the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination was approaching in a year. And uh, that perhaps we host commemorative events adjacent to what they were hosting. And that kind of just kept evolving. I was very curious, not about actually, um, I actually just couldn't get in contact with, with Pedro Reyes as much as I 
tried. Um, but I'm, I'm glad that we did it and that someone named Jim Brenner came in who'd been melting guns for a long time and just getting to meet so many people who've done alchemy work with guns, um, who on a, we sent out so many emails to so many people asking like so many metal artists if they would do an iron pour. And Jim had been doing it for 20 years and in public iron cast pours. And he immediately got back to us and said he would do it. And we got on a phone with him. This is the last thing I'll share about this. He was imagining we're at this cafe in Oakland and or Berkeley and he's telling us, you know, I, he's from Minnesota. He's like, you know, I think uh, it should be like a kind of a ritual, like a procession, you know, and he's going on about, uh, you know, you know, and he <laughs> is saying that he's imagining folks holding these torches um, and folks are processing the guns to the crucible and we're live melting them in Atlanta. And I just started weeping. Like I couldn't even, I had met with so many people and tried to design so many processes, me with industrial engineers, definitely didn't have the money that Pedro Reyes has to, I don't know, to make, to work with a factory and fabrication studio. Like he's loaded, you know, like I don't know how he got the money to do that. But it felt so good to take, appropriate like in a kind of way where I think of Noah Davis for example with the underground museum um the late Noah Davis in LA he had a vision for having a museum in LA and no one would lend him pieces to his like museum you know so he started to just imitate the pieces he wanted to be there and his stuff started to sell like from his imitations and he became famous through his imitations. And I, I deeply feel I'm in that canon of, of imitating because I couldn't get that access. And I'm so glad that I did because it permitted us to appropriate that meme that Pedro created. Mm. And that is an ancient meme of the prayer of swords to plowshares and a lot of communities and prophecies, the Haudenosaunee prophecy, thinking about, I'm not sure if that's the name of that. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm -mm. There's a prophecy about a, I need to come back to clarifying where, where, what the lineage of this prophecy is, but there's a, there's a lot of prophecies of folks like burying their weapons or transforming their weapons. Mm. And I think appropriating that meme allowed us to situate that mimetic device in a movement ecosystem um, and to weave people together who had otherwise not been working together across environmental and racial justice and across demilitarizing the police and holding police terrorism accountable and then folks who are supporting also food sovereignty or air quality or healthy and just supporting healthy environments to bring all those people into ceremony together and to say that what is happening to black people is also happening to the land and that, and that this healing must happen together, that it could come through the spectacle and miracle of alchemy. Um, and the way that it 
metabolizes a quickening of like a like and not seeing healthy death be a part of our communities and getting to witness a healthy death, getting to live witness a transition. Um, I think that's what alchemy has offered. And to your question around alchemy to close, I just think that I'm very interested in the like medieval alchemical stages uh, that were brought from Egypt and North Africa um, to Europe or taken or exchange. I don't know the I don't know the tea, but just thinking about um, the first stage in Latin of the four steps of when alchemists were trying to turn base metals to gold, um, that the first step is called nigredo, which I love, and it means the blackening, and it's the moment of first decomposition. And I'm interested in kind of staying in that state of not trying to become anything else, but like what happens for this season that I feel I'm on this earth and with the work that I'm doing, I'm interested in just that state of that unknowing of not trying to not knowing what we're going to become, not knowing what it's going to transform into. Um, Yes, the gun, yes, the shovels. Yes. We've also done other ritual objects, but those are just, memes and it's really around what are the ways that we are willing to be transformed um one of the prayers that the team says when we prepare time together we open space together is may we decompose violence in ourselves before we ask it of the world and i feel that is a site of nigredo um where we're all socialized and whole particular parts of an org we're all particular parts of an intelligent organism and we all are related to one another so you know I think a lot about a dream I had where Donald Trump was my father and I didn't want anyone to know that we were related in the dream and I was trying to tell him to shut up and he was begging me for forgiveness and though that exchange of being connected to the enemy um it is a it is a initiatory path to commit to that, but I think that some of the al- alchemy too, of not just alchemizing the state's violence on their behalf and or imagining that or playing with that, but also being like, what are my agreements? What do I mm-hmm. agree to? And what do, what do me and my people believe in and agree to? And how do we divest from our relationships to the ways that we uphold white supremacy, capitalism, harm to the earth, like, and not wait for someone to change it for me, though there are ways that the state could support easy changes. Um, Yeah, but to make those, those alternative fugitive agreements, I'm interested in that decomposition and surrender, even if it's really scary and unknown, and um, the grieving that supports that surrender because it's scary to divest from capitalism when you are owed. It is scary to dispossess yourself from those systems um, when they're still belonging 
you seek there. I feel that deeply in myself. Mm -hmm. I feel deeply I'm grieving some things right now that of ways I want to live or ways I thought I would live. And just like, it's not an integrity (laughs) and it does, it's not going to make me feel good. There's so much in what you just shared from the mimetic imitation as the bodily posturing of possibility, Mm. you know, this movement as creating a rhythm that can open up a portal Mm. of something new Mm. taking place that can weave a healing thread of safe passage Mm. um, from what was a, a complete rupture of violence. Mm. And, you know, as we're sitting here having this conversation, yesterday was um, the tragedy at the Brooklyn subway shooting. And that happened yesterday. Today in my city, they are releasing a video of yet another police shooting of Patrick Leoya, an unarmed 26-year-old black man. And I've spent a lot of time on this show talking about how unknowing is a practice of creativity, how we have to let go, how we have to be in that darkening, blackening space Mm -hmm. to let go of what we think we know to make room for what could be. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I wonder if you can articulate for us how that unknowing is a necessary step in alchemy for creative justice. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean life-giving justice, Uh, justice that creates and shifting the structures that proliferate these breaks, these violent breaks, mm. whether in terrorism or state violence. Mm. Because for so many people, the idea of a world without these weapons or an idea of a world without this state control, there, there hasn't been enough patterning of making room for other possibilities. So help us understand how we can practice unknowing in this moment Mm. with these tragedies, with the ongoing tragedies Mm. of violence? Yeah, I think, I think a lot about the deep anger I feel for irreconcilable and preventative harm. And I deeply feel that deaths like Patrick's or the mass murder yesterday in Brooklyn, it is irreconcilable loss. I really don't feel there's, um, I don't feel there's anything that can repair what happened. Um, And I think it's a joke to, you know, They're going to put these people on trial. They're going to do this whole thing. That person is going to maybe go to prison or not. Like, they're going to find a bunch of ways. I even was reading just on CNN around the just the passivity, the grammatical passivity of the person that killed Patrick. Um, During the struggle, the Grand Rapids police said, during the struggle, the officer's weapon discharged. Yeah. Yeah. Killing the man. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, my God. Um, Could you be more unaccountable? So there's that. Like, I feel like first, 
I feel like we live in this with these impulse where we really want justice. I really feel for the compassion. I really feel the compassion for wanting justice. And I also feel what if we accepted that there are some, when you take in that way, it is irreconcilable. Mm -hmm. And what do we do with that? Like, what do we do with irreconcilability? Mm. Um, what do we do if you, you can't, You Patrick's never gonna be on this planet again. Um, and his memories, the memories of his life are gonna be with his family. And I pray that that keeps his spirit alive, but the joy that his family had with him is never gonna be brought back none of it is going to come back like the joy that his community had with him um so i'm just kind of left with that and i'm left with that unknowing of like what do you do with that mm -hmm. what do you do with not being able to resolve and what do we do in a world that's asking us to resolve so much yeah. that's unresolvable yeah um we can't resolve slavery. <laughs> like we can't, we could practice reparations, but there are so, there's so much that's left unresolved. And I think the only thing that I could imagine that is not even a, um, it's not even retribution, but it at least addresses the core underlying violence that keeps perpetuating these harms is if white folks and descendant people who are benefiting from white supremacy, um, the only thing that I can feel is their own commemorative work, their own reckoning, their own working with the hauntings, their own working with the ancestors. Like that to me is like an interdimensional reckoning mm -hmm. that is like unseen. And I mean, there's, there's real things people can do like move money and, and like think more about how space is designed. And there's like really real things that right, I believe right, right. that can happen on this realm to make life more livable for people and equitable but it doesn't address this core sadness that has been inherited and this core emptiness and this core wandering and this individualization mm -hmm. and um, the ways that I feel like cis-heteropatriarchy has deeply disturbed people where people can't men cis het men or cis men just like where you're just like you can't feel you can't share like there's something to me that I'm interested in I just was with a group um called ancestors and money that my friends Morgan that my friend Morgan Curtis organizes and my friend Justine Epstein also is a co-conspirator for that body of work and I've come in as a guest teacher for three of their sessions with their cohorts of white folks with inherited wealth who are redistributing 
going through a process of their relationship to their inheritance and then also meditating on radical redistribution. And they asked me for my last session to talk about Black liberation and healing. And I just shared, you know, Black liberation, it's not to me, it's not about you helping me get free. It's about you getting free through Blackness. Um, And this doesn't mean transraciality. (laughs) It doesn't mean like doing weird stuff like that or like, you know, cultural appropriation, but like actual Blackness, like mystery, like being willing to the ways that unknowing is so scary for people because we live in an anti-Black world. We live in a world that is afraid of darkness, that is afraid of not being able to see what is ahead, um, that doesn't have any more muscles for intuition or trust, that there is grace on the other side of surrender. There's We don't live in a world that has that trust in Blackness. And for me, I wish people would just let go and go in and know that blackness will catch you. Unknowing will catch you. There's belonging for you after you let go. There's more belonging left for you. There's more security. Um, And I think all of that needs to happen relationally. I don't think we can let go without each other. Mm -hmm. We have to let go together. Um, Yeah. And I think that's scary because people don't have, who will they go talk to? I just watched this episode of Atlanta last night and I'm going to give it away. I'm sorry. So if you don't want to hear the tea, you know, pause and go watch Atlanta episode three, season four. (laughs) Um, But it was an episode about reparations and it's like this person has done this mass lawsuit to a Tesla executive who Basically, the person is saying you're uh, the lawsuit is your ancestors enslaved my ancestors. So you're able to come to your role as this executive in this company that we both work in because of that lineage. And he wins this lawsuit in the uh, show. And so it's creating this ripple where all these black people start to file their lawsuits for reparations and this retribution tax comes in for people who are descendants of enslavers. And this one white man in the who's the main character in this episode is really having a process. He's a simple guy. He just wants to listen to his podcast, have his Starbucks like he's just going on his fucking day. And then. And he's like a, he's a simple guy with a little corporate small job. And then this black lady is like, you owe me $3 million. She's coming to her, his house. I'm like, this is my house. <laughs> it was a great episode. Um, but what I noticed at the end, I really wish the episode would have gone further, but I guess that's my project to do. <laughs> but the, but the end of the episode, um, there was a conversation between these two white men he feels like he's lost everything, the main character. And he's talking with another white man. His name is Marshall. He's talking with another white man, Ernest. He just met at this hotel. His wife was like, you cannot come back here. We need to finalize this divorce. They basically not going to come for my money. Um, And so he's at this hotel and they're talking and he's like, what is this? Like, this shouldn't have happened to us. You know, like what's going on? Mm -hmm. 
And Ernest is in this reckoning of like, I don't know. I don't really know what you're, I don't really know if, I don't really know like what, he was like, yes, you got divorced and you lost your job and all this stuff, but you're really going to be fine. Mm -hmm. You're going to find another job. Mm -hmm. Your daughter's going to be fine. Everything's going to be okay. Um, But that hasn't been true for our Black community who has been living with lineages and legacies of violence from white supremacy and capitalism. And they have this very profound conversation. And then the the white man who challenges him goes outside and he just kills himself. He just like the one who was giving him the wisdom. And it was something about this imagery. And I think about like led to, I was surprised that it went there and I'm kind of processing in this moment where I didn't expect that. I thought they were going to keep talking. And to me, it reflected this deep aloneness. I know that disconnection, disconnection. like he, he did have this realization and he was like, who am I? But because there was no reference for who he could be without his whiteness, he just didn't even matter anymore. Mm. So he just left. And I think about, you know, that the most gun violence that we have in this country is not homicides, it's suicides. And it's predominantly white men who are killing themselves. And most of the emails that we've got, we've never gotten an email to transform a gun from anybody black. All of the emails that Led to Life has received about transforming a weapon has been a white family member that committed suicide and the family comes back into relationship with the weapon and asking for how to transform the weapon because it's like property back to the family. Hmm. Um, So I just feel that longing and desperation for ritual and community. And what do you belong to after all of that? Like I felt that in the episode of like, he was like, I understand. And now I don't know what to do with any of that. Um, that feels like a hard place to leave this conversation off at, but no. And (laughs) and I just want to ask you about this unknowing of separateness (laughs) that people Mm. will ask me, well, you can't just, you can't just be about unknowing. Like at some point you have to know, like, so you're going to unknow, but then you're going to know again. Right. And it's like, no, I, I think this is a path of no arrival. At least in this phase, it feels like unknowing is the work. And in the unknowing, the thing I can point to in my in my body is an experience of remembering. So it's not like I unknew and then I got the answer and this is what it is. You know, I have a thing. I have a certainty. I have a certitude. I have a... Um, something that I can declaratively colonize with and be like, it's this, Mm. this word, this structure, Mm. this idea. But instead, when that relaxation of unknowing is a full yield and surrender, what what the experience has is taught me through my body is there's a remembering, there is a a membership, a coming back together, a healing Mm. with the with my body, through my body, bodiliness. And so I want to I want to ask you about about this because um, 
you have some beautiful statements about how you relate to God in this moment, you know, post maps. Mm. And I sometimes have referenced God as the community formerly known as God, <laughs> the community FKA God, <laughs> because it helps to uh-huh. it helps to reframe the concept of divinity for me as power, a structure like it's like a life force of power with versus, you know, a singular power mm. over. And um I'm going to read you some quotes of things that you've said where you you say you're moved by the questions, how can we allow as much room for God to flow through and between us as possible? What affirms the the God of and between us? What's in the way? What ways can Black feminist placemaking rooted in commemorative justice promote the memory of God, which is to say, love and freedom between us? And so this weave, this weaving of a more than oneness, of reframing divinity and our identity as not being singular. Mm. How is unknowing singularity or separateness a practice of this deep other space-time healing that you're talking about, right? Because there are there's work to be done on this plane, and you're absolutely validating that as important. And you're saying there is a fundamental shift away from the imprisonment of self as separate, other, apart from environment, um, this relationality that we form a part of with each other. So as we begin to close here, I want to ask you about being more than one. Mm. Mm. Oh, thank you. Yeah, the first thing that comes to my spirit is some friends who are getting married today. Zoe and Elle, shout out to y'all. Zoe, I was sitting in peer council, kind of happenstance with Zoe and Elle in Atlanta and um, just around my partnership and and a problem that my partner and I were having at that moment and we end up where what was going to be a lunch date ended up being the entire day <laughs> in pure council at this restaurant we literally went through all of the different <laughs> meals. days of the meal like <laughs> all the different times of the meals available there from <laughs> breakfast to dinner um it was amazing mm-hmm. i'm like i love that we had time for that mm-hmm. or made time for it um And something that Zoe, I was so angry that I felt misunderstood by my partner. And Zoe was sharing that for Zoe, understanding was a project of white supremacy, of the prioritization of understanding and being understood um, that it is concentrated on this focus of a, a particular, it's focused on a particular form of, of knowledge, uh, of this idea of prioritizing knowledge. And they said, what would be different is, did you feel, do you feel loved? Mm. You know, could you all love each other and then get to the understanding? But if it's focused on understanding, then you can't, be in love with each other. Um, yeah, so I, you're, you can't feel the love because you're focused on understanding. And I was like, damn, I mean, 
okay. Like I, I felt like I want to be understood. Like, um, <laughs> but I really felt that invitation of love, prioritizing love over understanding. And I think it's something I don't even really need to understand. That's the thing. I feel like I try to like understand that of like, "Mm, that don't seem right to me. But just to let it work on me, even if it's not always true. Hmm. Uh, But what is that relationship? And I think about that when I, it is my, my practice in really witnessing other beings who may be read as the other. Um, my practice is focus in feeling what's underneath. Even if I know what they're saying is a little, I'm like, what the fuck is going on? You know, what are you saying to me? Mm-hmm. Um, I think about these core wounds around belonging and security and where am I? And, and these ways that people um, assign their harm, they project their longings into ways that they might harm. So because they can't express mm. their longing. Um, yeah. And I'm thinking, I'm just thinking about particular moments where I've had to, where I've, in my spirit, it felt important also for my own safety. I think a lot of what I'm saying has been for my own safety to be willing to imagine someone else's experience. Because if I don't, I'm going to put myself into in an unsafe situation because I'm going to react mm-hmm. um, to their to their wound. And I think of a story from I heard this from Trisha Hersey, who runs the Nat Ministry or sleeps the Nat Ministry, <laughs> guides the Nat Ministry. She's definitely not running it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and Trisha was telling me that about this story from Elder Bernard Lafayette, who was a part of the civil rights movement. She was in a Kingian nonviolence workshop that he was one of the guides at. And he told this story of after Medgar Evers was killed, there was a lot of tension around their community with the fear of being assassinated. And uh, Medgar was killed in Jackson. He was, I think Bernard may have been in Mississippi as well, but he was in his driveway and a somebody from the KKK white supremacist came to hit him on the head with a weapon and he fell to the ground and he proceeded to send the energy of the gun and the person's hatred back to them. He just started to go into a trance state and send it back to them. Um, things that they had been trained in through their nonviolence work um, of practicing having cigarettes burned on you, of having hot coffee thrown on you, of having people talk shit in your face. 
these were deeply spiritual practices. This was not just people turning the other cheek. This was deep trance states that people were ascending and descending to, to make it plain that we don't agree with the world that you live in. I don't live in that world. I don't live in a world where you could talk to me like that. I don't, and I don't need to tell you, I'm just not going to even, I'm, I am in a sovereign state and it's a, yeah, it's a very, I used to be like, I used to hate that shit. And now I understand how deep of a practice it was to go to those states, to those fugitive states and to let them see themselves. I'm going to let you see yourself by not responding to your shit. I'm going to let you see what, what that is. And because otherwise you're not going to see it. If I react the same way, you're not going to see your shit. And um, Bernard sent this energy back to the gun and the aggressor and the gun jam four times. <laughs> what? <laughs> Talk about alchemy. The gun jammed four times and the man <gasps> broke down, like literally <sighs> broke down, shaking in tears and ran away. Now, it could have been a mistake. It could have been, you know, it's a miracle. But it's it's that willingness to know that you can change space and time and that if you're in a different agreement, that agreement can protect you. And um, there's something to me about that to your point around separation um, and how do we alchemize our relationship to like connection and like not, and not being in a world that's predicated on separation. For me, that moment, Bernard is collaborating with so many energies. Like he's saying, you're not, your action is not just your own action. Like mm-hmm. I actually can, I am a part of this moment that's happening and I am not just a bystander to this mm-hmm. moment. I actually mm-hmm. can change this moment. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm not telling people to go, go do shit like that. I, I don't mm-hmm. know what happened in that situation. <laughs> I'm not saying if somebody has a gun in your face to go start going into a trance state, mm-hmm. I don't know what I would do, but there's something that I know that is so powerful about him going into a state of another agreement to know that he's not separate from the forces that are causing the harm. And that I think is the practice of the the Buddhist practice of Tonglen Mm -hmm. to be able to not only, it's not that you're taking the hatred from someone else. You're not taking it on and transmuting it for them. You know that you're capable of that same violence and so you transmute it in yourself and you alchemize it in your own being and you send that. And that it's it's also something possible that you could do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will close with just sharing that I had a Tonglin experience with a um, guide. Um, whew, I hate that I am. Uh, Anouk. I don't know Anouk's last name. I'm sorry, Anouk. I don't know what your last name is. Um, but I was with Anouk and a dear friend, uh, Esperanza, and we're working on a project that is at these intersections of Tonglen. And we were practicing Tonglen every day as we were writing, deeply influenced by Elder Lafayette's story. 
And there was a moment where before we went into our Tonglin practice, someone was talking about an attack that had happened to a mutual friend's daughter in Brazil. And I got a little activated because I had been robbed and attacked in Brazil two years prior. Um, And that, that still troubles me. My hand still hurts from it. Like I still have my, I'm very alert because of it in a new way. And we went into the Tonglin practice and that was the day that Anouk shared that Tonglin is not just about doing something else for someone else, but it's also for yourself. And that that self is connected to these other beings. And it was the first time, even though I felt I had forgiven so quickly, it was the first time that I actually felt through the breath practice, my deep forgiveness my deep ability to feel under other circumstances that I could have caused the same harm. Um, Also to be hurt by black queer people was so absurd to me. There was a lot of weird things that happened in this situation, but feeling that I actually felt connected. I felt deeply connected. And I don't think this is for everyone. I don't think the practices I'm saying are for everyone. I know what I'm saying also can be deeply triggering. And I think resentment when we need to have it can be sacred. And I think if you got a grudge and it's right, righteous and you don't have support to work with that, like then you keep that grudge. Like I'm not, but I also know that it, it hurts you. It hurts. It hurt me to have that on my spirit. It hurt me to still feel that with me. Um, and I had to be like, this is not about forgiving them necessarily. It's actually about letting it transmute in my own body. And it was so powerful. And I also felt compassion for them in a way that I hadn't been able to feel. Because you're visualizing, you're deeply visualizing the person. And then you're extending the grace and mercy of Tonglin. Um, So... I don't know if they answered the question, but those are the things that came. <laughs> what a canon this conversation mm. has been. Um, mm. You have woven threads between realms. You have woven threads of connection through time and space. And the recognition of the discovery of our divine power to create and co-create other possibilities, Mm. if we have the courage to really unknow, to allow that alchemical stage to pass and to happen. And so, Bronte, thank you for your spell Mm. of of this time. I know it has done and shifted things in me that I don't even have words for, and I don't need to know. I just can feel I can feel it, and I'm grateful. Thank you. Thank you so much. I feel similarly that I definitely don't remember anything that just happened. So <laughs> I, look, I look forward to reflecting um, and, and receiving whatever channeling came through. And thank you for the space to, 
just be in reflection and um, to to recall and to remember and to situate myself at this moment. I'm deeply grateful, always grateful for the opportunity to to see one another and and to be hosted in this way. So I'm so grateful. Thank you. So we are learning how to disavow ourselves from the maps of institutionalized oppression, of state violence, of the violence that we as white people carry as our legacy, as our heritage against black and brown bodies. Here's what I'm taking with me from this conversation. Unknowing is the work, full stop. I think this is really what I'm taking with me from this conversation is Nigredo, the embrace of the alchemical stage of blackness, of embracing the mystery of decomposition and unknowing, unsaying, undoing, allowing that to be the creative work of healing through weaving something new, not in an abstract, esoteric way, but in a deeply embodied, imaginal, mimetic way, a way that operates on this plane but invites a completely other plane of reality into this world. <laughs> and maybe this sounds far out there to you, but I, I, I'm certain that you've experienced this in your own life. Every time you welcome in a new possibility, every time you feel the creative instinct or urge, it's because some part of you opened up and let go. Some part of you released what it is that you thought you knew. And with that release came the reception of something so much more. That's it for today's conversation. If you're enjoying these conversations, I want to invite you to become an Unknowing community member. Unknowing is brought to you entirely because of the communal effort of this family, those who are listening and participating and co-creating this show with me through communal patronage. You can find links to how to do that on the show notes. And finally, in closing, in the words of Rebecca Solnit, Leave the door open for the unknown, the door into the dark. That's where the most important things come from, where you yourself came from, and where you will go.